you know, our program is, is a simple program, but it's not a simple program to work. It's a hard program to work. It's, an, it's a program where we have to be bare bones honest. We have to be open to all of our emotions and our experiences. And I know it takes, it takes courageous people to do that. It takes courageous people to do that. And I just happen to be in so much pain. That's what motivated me. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Howdy, howdy, howdy. From deep in the heart of Texas, y'all. So glad you're with us today. This is episode number 153. 153. Can you believe we have 153 episodes of So Speak so far? Anyway, I'm glad to be here with you, my tribe, my people. That was the voice at the beginning of this episode of Miss Angie B that you heard, and you will be hearing so much more from her in just a moment, but first things first, this episode is brought to you by Laura and Kenneth and Chris. Do you know what Laura and Kenneth and Chris did? Well, let me tell you, they went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Laura and Kenneth and Chris, for your generosity. This episode is coming right out to you alls. I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly privileged and honored to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table, and let's get started. All right, so I came across, well, actually, I didn't come across it. I was in a conversation earlier this week with Mr. Ken D. Now, a lot of you are going to know Ken D. He's in his 80s now. I believe he got sober in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he lives out in the San Diego area. He has been a circuit speaker for many moons, and uh, he is just a great guy. Anyway, we're having a, a an extended conversation, and he brought up a, a an article from the July 1946 grapevine. And if you just, if you're interested in this and you just want to uh, Google it, I'm sure you can find it. Uh, it's called, uh, um, there, there's an article within the July 1946 grapevine. By the way, if you don't know what the grapevine is, and uh, it is what you call, I think they call it our, our meeting in print or our uh, international journal journal for Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and uh, it's actually a very good uh, publication. Nonetheless, um, there is an article in that July 1946 grapevine that says the individual in relation to AA as a group, and this is written by Bill Wilson, and um, it's a pretty long article. I'm going to read just portions of it to you here, okay? It says... um, there's an apparent contradiction. It says, yet point 
point three in our AA tradition looks like. He's talking about the third tradition in Alcoholics Anonymous. He says it looks like a wide open invitation to anarchy. And this is the tradition that says um, that uh, the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. He says it seemingly contradicts Point number one, and he's talking about the first tradition, which says our common welfare should come first. He says the third tradition reads, quote, our membership, and this is the longer form of the tradition. He says it reads, our membership ought to include all who suffer from alcoholism. Hence, we may refuse none who wish to recover, nor ought AA membership ever depend on money or or conformity. Any two or three alcoholics gathered together for sobriety may call themselves an AA group, unquote. So, and then Bill goes on to explain, he says, this clearly implies that al- that an alcoholic is a member if he says so. Now, keep in mind, they're going to say he here was written in the 1940s, but uh, we all know it, it could be either he or she. Um, that we can't deny him his membership, that we can't demand from him a cent, that we can't force our, our beliefs or practices upon him, that he may flout everything we stand for and still be a member. In fact, our tradition carries the principle of independence for the individual to such an apparently fantastic length that so long as there is the slightest interest in sobriety, the most unmoral, the most antisocial, the most critical alcoholic may gather about him a few kindred spirits and announce to us that a new Alcoholics Anonymous group has been formed. It can be anti-God, anti-medicine, anti-our recovery program, even anti-each other. These rampant individuals are still an AA group if they think so. So, One of the pieces that really, I mean, all of it caught my attention, but the part that I really liked, he says that so long as there is a slightest interest in sobriety, someone can call themselves a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. The bar is very low. Um, And there's a lot of folks out there nowadays, uh, I don't want to get into too much opinion here, but um, there are people who want to delist other particular uh, AA groups because mm, they don't stand for what is mainstream in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think that's a dangerous place to be. Nonetheless, I just wanted to read that. Once again, if you want to read it, if you want to find it yourself, July 1946, Grapevine, the individual in relation to AA as a group. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and put this in the show notes. That'll be make it easier for you. Just a, a link to that. All right. Now on to Miss Angie B. And this is part one of her story. The story is called Story of Hope in Al-Anon. We have another Al-Anon member in Sober Speak today, and I'm so grateful that we do. Angie has been in Al-Anon for 30 years, since June 15th of 1990. However, her first Al-Anon meeting was in 1978. She went in and out of Al-Anon for uh, 12 years. As Angie says, success in the program requires being, quote, bare bones honest, unquote. Angie grew up in Alabama. She had a military upbringing and still has a love for reading like she did when she was a kid. She's very open about her plethora of marriages and says something to the effect of when we know that we're settling and we shouldn't do such. Um, And however, though, she finally found true love with Mr. Chip B, and I'm going to have him on actually in a couple of weeks. All right, everybody, buckle up, enjoy Miss Angie B, and we will have some listener feedback for you at the end of this episode. Enjoy.
Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here and I'm so happy to be sitting here with Ms. Angie B from Destin, Florida. So first of all, Angie, why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself. Angie, Angie is from Al-Anon, so she won't be giving us sobriety day, but why don't you introduce yourself and tell us how long you've been in Al-Anon. Thank you so much, John. I'm so happy to be here today. I am a grateful member of Al-Anon. And I've been a continuing and a very active member for the last 30 years, since June 15th, 1990. Wow. June 15th of 1990. And uh, did you ever think we'd be sitting here in a pandemic on Zoom doing a meeting when you uh, joined in June 15th of 1990? Absolutely not. Would <laughs> have been hard to predict. Not All in right. my wildest dreams did I ever imagine a time like this. So no. Oh, it's so wild. So wild. So let me go ahead and set it up here a little bit how uh, Angie and I came across each other. So I was in with my family last year. We were in Crested Butte, Colorado, and they bring in, when I say they, the, the conference there brings in speakers uh, for the week. And there was probably, I don't know, four or five different uh, AA speakers, and then they brought in an Al-Anon speaker. And like I was telling you, Angie, before we started, and like I told my wife right before we started this, uh, we were absolutely mesmerized by your talk. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart and it's very genuine. Uh, I remember telling my, my wife uh, actually just moments ago, and then when we were leaving the conference, I go, Angie was the best speaker of all of them. She actually blew them all out of the water. So you really did great. So I was, I've been, uh, we've been trying to get together here over the last year. We tried once, yes. we had some technical difficulties. And so now we're finally here and I'm just, uh, uh, I'm, I'm like a school child. I'm just giddy <laughs> as can be. <laughs> let, let, let me say this. Um, you know, it, it always works if I can get my ego out of the way and let God do what God wants to do. And, and that day I was just able to do that. It's not always that way. You know, my ego is very powerful and very strong. So, uh, but I do believe that God expects us to suit up and show up. And if we'll get out of the way, he'll do the work that he needs to do. So thank you so much for those kind words. Well, you did it that night. And I remember, can you, can you uh, repeat for me? You, you, uh, you said something about how you loved alcoholics and they shined and you were looking out at the audience and you were in a good place about that. Can you describe that? Cause I remember it was a perfect way to start. I can, uh, you know, when, um, I've always been attracted to alcoholics, and this is what it's like for me. I can be in a room of 500 people, and there can be one alcoholic in that room. And the heavens open up, and the angelic chorus sings, and the sunbeams and moonbeams shine down on that alcoholic. <laughs> and I can tell you, John, that my computer has a little glow about it today. So, um, <laughs> you know, I'm glad to be here with you. <laughs> I love alcoholics. I love Al-Anons. I always have. My sponsor said to me one time, she said, Angie, you're probably always going to be attracted to alcoholics. And she said, you just need to learn how to stick with the winners. Right. Just learn how to stick with the winners. So I have definitely tried to do that over the years. And I'm glad that that's one, one suggestion I did listen to that my sponsor made. And uh, it has been a wonderful journey and a wonderful ride with with the whole community and whole family of recovery, Al-Anon, AA, it's, it's just been, Alateen, it's been awesome. Right. That is fantastic. All right. So let's talk then a little bit about, first, you know, let's just go into Angie, what she was like, what, you know, what happened and what she's like today. Let's start with the, you know, what she was like. Why don't you kind of describe your upbringing, where you came from, what made you who you are today? Sure. My dad was an army officer. Uh, I always knew what rank he was by how my parents would have us answer the telephone. Um, so when he was a captain, it was Captain Rayleigh's residence, Angeline speaking, may I help you? Uh, and then so on. Um, so we were, we lived uh, a military life. Um, my father was not an alcoholic. He truly was a social drinker. I saw him tipsy, quote unquote, a, a few times in my life. And what that was like for me was he would come home from a military event and he would go over to the telephone and he would get out his address book and call all of his old army buddies 
and they would reminisce and share stories and laugh over the telephone. And it was great fun for me because my dad talked very, very little about his military experiences. So I love those times when that would happen. Uh, so that was fun. Then my mother was an alcoholic and she was quite physically abusive to me growing up. Uh, we had a pretty tumultuous relationship growing up with me growing up. Uh, and then my brother was seven years older than me. So he was uh, almost a different generation than I was when I came along. And he was uh, a star athlete, just star athlete. If it was a ball involved, he excelled at it. He was the quarterback on the football team, the pitcher on the baseball team, the forward on the basketball team, the captain of the, of the golf league. You know, back then we had very defined sports seasons. And so he just would go from one to the other all year long. So he was out doing sports. And then there was me, and I lived my life in books. I loved to read. I still love to read today. Um, and I found in those books that I could fall in love with those families and those people and those places. And I never had to leave them because I learned as an army brat that if I said hello to you, that meant I would have to say goodbye to you. And I did not want to have to say goodbye. So pretty quickly on, I learned to hardly ever say hello. So I kind of stayed to myself. I was pretty quiet. I was either quiet or I was the life of the party, one or the other. But I did it without alcohol. <laughs> um, and we moved. You know, we were always thinking about moving or moving or uh, just having moved. And, and that was the way life was for me growing up. And we looked really, really good on the outside, really good. I still have a book that my mother had called The Army Officer's Wife. Mm -hmm. And it's a very big book. And she excelled at that. We had a, a beautiful home. She kept everything clean. We had good food to eat. Um, we looked great. But on the inside, we were really four islands that just kind of were under this roof together. And we all did our own things. And once in a while, we came together. And then we would just be four islands. And, and that was how I grew up. Uh, I did get to go. Our hometown was Andalusia, Alabama. Both sets of my grandparents lived there. And I spent many summers there with my grandparents. I loved that time in my life. I loved being with them. Um, I just, it was wonderful. It was just a wonderful experience being with them in the summer. We would do the whole vegetable thing and put vegetables in the freezer and play canasta at night and rook and sit around and laugh. And my grandmother would tell wonderful stories. And that was a great time for me. Uh, and we would come home there on holidays on occasion. So that was my life growing up. So that was in, did you say that was in Alabama? Is that right? Yes. Andalusia, Alabama is my hometown. Uh-huh. And so are you an Alabama fan still? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris I have a, 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 a granddaughter that is going to Auburn. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, um, I told her I would buy something orange. <laughs> she bucked the system, huh? She really bucked the system. <laughs> So I want to go back a little bit. You had mentioned there just briefly that your mom was uh, mm -hmm. uh, abusive. Mm -hmm. um, I, can you dive into that a little bit more, what you meant by that? Sure. She was physically abusive to me and uh, emotionally abusive to me growing up. Um, I don't really know. I don't really know because we never really talked about it. The, the things that played into that for her. I just know that, that what it played into for me was I learned to uh, sometimes she would be abusive to me and she would uh, do that uh, until I would quit crying. And so she would be switching me or hitting me and that and I would be crying and she would tell me she would continue to do it until until I quit crying. So I had to learn to uh, hold those emotions in and uh, be uh, stoic and. And, uh, and do what was necessary for me to do. Now, I will say this. I grew up thinking it was all my fault, that all of it was my fault. If I could just be cuter or smarter or say the right thing or be kinder or uh, be whatever it was that was the magic thing, then I could make that abuse stop. I could make it go away. Mm. Uh, uh, on a couple of occasions, she threatened to kill me, and, I, and it it really terrified me, and I really believed that. Um, 
And there was there were lots of things like I might come home from school and she might be slamming cabinet doors and I would say, what's wrong? And she would slam those cabinet doors and in a very loud voice say, nothing is wrong. So I was always getting two messages. Nothing is wrong. Everything is wrong. And I could never make sense of which message was right, except the message that came from my heart or my inside or my intuition or whatever. And that message was often what people were not saying. The message I got was often what they were not saying. Mm -hmm. And so then I would be even more confused. You know, um, I was talking with somebody one day and I said, you know, I think emotional abuse, physical abuse, I could not, I could not connect it to the alcohol at that time. I didn't, I didn't know about alcoholism growing up. I just knew that this is how my mother was. And so I had nothing that I could hook those behaviors onto. There was, there was just nothing except me, nothing except me. And so I knew that it was me, that I was what was wrong. I was what was defective. I was what wasn't right in that family because it didn't seem like those things happened with my brother. It didn't seem like those things happened with my dad. It just seemed like those things happened with me. Wow. So I was going to ask you about that with your brother, that they had a different type of relationship with him. Is that right? Yes. Yes. My, my, from what I've understood from my brother as we've grown up, he had a wonderful relationship with my mother. He had not so wonderful relationship with my dad. And we were talking one day and he, you know, he told me that he believed what I said. He believed because I was right about all of the other family experiences. So he believed what I shared with him. He said, but you know, that wasn't my experience. And I said, I understand that. I said, I believe what you're telling me about dad. But you know, that wasn't my experience. He was very kind to me. He never laid a hand on me growing up. He, um, man, he could just look at me and say, I'm disappointed in you. And it, my, it would just crush my heart. It would just crush my heart, you know. Um, so, but my brother had a very different experience with my dad. So it's like we really grew up in two different houses, but we didn't. We grew up in the same house, and that's really helped me understand family so much. Most any family experience we can talk about, our family members are going to think we're either not telling the truth or they're going to say, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. And they'll tell their truth. And, you know, it's all true, I guess, from our perspective. It's all true. It may be if there's six people in a family, it'll be six stories. Right. But they're all true. So nobody needs to be lambasted for telling their truth. That's right. It's their truth. And we need to accept it and acknowledge it. That's your truth. But it doesn't take away from my truth. It doesn't make my truth go away. It doesn't make my truth any less value than your truth is. We just have different truths. And it's okay. That's why police hate it when there's more than one witness to a car accident. Right. Because they know they're going to get two different stories and the insurance company's going to have a fit. You know, they love it when there's only one witness. Um, and so I can appreciate so much families that uh, don't understand recovery. They don't understand what we do. They say we're a cult. They say we're all kind of stuff because their truth is different. But our truth is our truth, and, and, and we need to honor it and respect it, just as I try to honor and respect the truth of other people in my family. That's right. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been through those same discussions. And now, first of all, I, I'm an only child, so I didn't have any brothers or sisters to compare and contrast and such. But I have, you know, sponsored a lot of guys throughout the years. And one of the first questions I'll ask them when we're going through the fourth, fifth and the amends process is, uh, you know, do you have brothers and sisters when they kind of get into the mommy and daddy issues? And, and those, you know, generally speaking, say yes. And I said, well, do they see this the same way? It just about every time time. There's a pause. You go, well, you know, no, they don't. So, you know, it, 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 it's confusing, but I love how you put it. You have to respect, you have to respect other people's truths yes. and you have to respect your own truth and your own perception. And uh, uh, I love the way you say that. That's great. Well, thank you. Thank you. 
All right. So, so you during this period to escape some of that looks like you dove into the books, right? Can you, can you dive in a little bit more there about the books and what they did for you, where that took you and uh, how that helped you to escape? And, and ultimately, how did it benefit you in the long run? Sure. I was one of those readers that at night I would be under the covers with the flashlight reading when I was supposed <laughs> to be sleeping. For, for me, it, rela- it, it relieved me of stress. It relieved me of anxiety. It relieved me of worry. It relieved me of fear. Um, it just took me to another place. It took me to, uh, to worlds and lands and events that, uh, I didn't have to try to figure out. I didn't have to be the one responsible. Uh, I wasn't the one that was uh, different. I wasn't the one that was um, wrong. I, I was just an observer and sometimes a participant in, in the stories that I read. I believe that my love for reading has helped me, oh, in, in every every part of my life, I guess I, I excelled at school. I skipped a grade in school, but then they would let you skip a grade. So I skipped a grade in school and I was already, my birthday's in June. So I was already a year younger than people. So I skipped the, the fourth grade. I went from third to fifth. And so then I was two years younger than my peers. But if you were to see us as a group, you would never know that uh, because I, I grew up, I didn't know how to play and be a kid until I grew up and got in recovery. Uh, And once I grew up and got in recovery, then I learned how to play and be a kid. Mm. So I was quite responsible. uh, But books really helped me be able to focus. They helped me be able to uh, imagine a different life, imagine a different way of living and being than the way that I was in. Uh, and certainly exposed me to all different kinds of people and families and events and countries and uh, all those things that I, that I know I never would have had otherwise. So they were a great comfort to me, a great comfort. I remember, I remember after you spoke in Crested Butte thinking to myself that, uh, you know, it, it, it was the way that you uh, gave metaphors and analogies and you expressed yourself <clears throat> Excuse me. And I remember thinking to myself, that it, a big part of that is, is all that reading that you've done throughout your years, right? You've learned how to express yourself and you've seen how other people express yourself. And I, I thought that was, I, it was absolutely fantastic. To me, your reading and what you were doing under the covers as a kid with that flashlight has benefited people like me and others where you've been able to spread your, uh, you know, tell your story throughout the years. I oh, thanks, John. You know, you know, I, I sometimes tell people that all the events of our lives, we don't know how it's shaping up to be whatever the next chapter is going to be. But, you know, then it will happen. And I'll say, that's why that happened. But, you know, then a few years will go by and I'll say, that's why that happened. Right. <laughs> it's like more will be revealed if we get to stay on this earth long enough. More just keeps being revealed. And what a journey it is, you know? Oh, yes. All right. So let's get to you. So I've been, I've been really caught up in your childhood and your family. So, so at some point, then, it looks like you got out of the house, right? Yes. And yes. then, so take me through that period of leaving the coop, if you will, and what that was like in your life. Well, well, you know, for me, I graduated high school when I was 16. I was two years younger, see, than my peers. So I graduated high school at 16. My parents thought, and I I had a job. I was working uh, as a checkout clerk at a Winn-Dixie grocery store and going to school. (laughs) My parents thought that I was too young to go to college. They thought that I was too young to move away from home. So I got married. And that is the truth. I was married for about three months. I married, uh, this is one year that led me to Al-Anon. I graduated high school at 16 on June the 4th, got married on June the 7th, turned 17 on June the 15th, became pregnant in August, uh, separated in November, divorced in February, and my daughter Amanda was born in May. So that was one year of my life. And I had many years like that. So we would be here for a long time if I shared all that with you. But I had many years like that. 
And so finally, finally, in 1978, I was living in a small town, that same small town in South Alabama called Andalusia. And I was uh, in a musical called Carousel. I played the lady of the evening. And the sunbeams and moonbeams shone down on the villain whose name was Paul. And so Paul asked me out on a date. We went. And on the way home, he, I heard him say, Angie, I'm going to an AA meeting Saturday night. Would you like to go with me? And I said, sure. So the week rocked on, and uh, I asked my mother if she would babysit Amanda. By this time, I had been married to alcoholics that I did not know were alcoholics several times. I had a beautiful little girl named Amanda. My mom said, sure, she would babysit. She said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to an AA meeting. And she said, well, what is AA? And I said, I don't know. But at this time, I was driving dirt track race cars for fun. And so I knew AAA was about cars. <laughs> so that's what I said to my mother. I said, well, AAA is about cars. So I'm thinking AA must be about cars too. <laughs> and so Saturday night came and Paul picked me up and we went to another little town in South Alabama called Op. And we pulled into a church parking lot and I thought, this is a strange place to have a meeting about cars. And we walked <laughs> inside and he, and he gestured to the right and he said, we're going over here. And then he gestured to the left and he said, and you're going over here. And when I turned to the left, there was a woman standing in the doorway that I could see just as good today as I saw that night in 1978. Her name was Miss Ina. She had a tall bouffant hairdo with brown curls everywhere, a royal blue silk dress on. It belted at the waist, black patent leather high heel shoes, her hose. She had her jewelry on and she held out her hand and she said, honey, you come with me. And that was my first Alan on me. And that was 1978? 1978, uh-huh. And so uh, I can't tell you anything that was said that night. You know, sometimes great events happen in our lives, but we don't realize they're great events. And uh, I didn't. But I can tell you that night she gave me my one day at a time book that I still have today. And I knew I was home. I knew I was home. But you see, in 1978 in South Alabama, Alanon had, I think, three books. Um, the Dilemma of the Alcoholic Marriage, Alanon Family Groups, and One Day at a Time. And the women that went to Al-Anon were married to the men that went to Alcoholics Anonymous that met in the room right next door to where the Al-Anon meeting was. Right. Well, you see, that's not who I was. That's not who I was. So while I identified with the message, I didn't really identify so much with the messengers. I'm so grateful today that Al-Anon is made up of so many different people from so many different walks of life. Uh, I'm very, very grateful about that. So I was in and out, in and out of Al-Anon. I'd run out there and mess up some. I'd run back in and learn a little bit more just to be dangerous. And then I'd run <laughs> back out there. And I did that for 12 years until June 15th, 1991. I said, Angie, you are so blessed. Most people never find the rooms of Al-Anon. You know, Lois Wilson was very concerned about that. I've read what she, some of what she said about that. She was so worried that we would be so anonymous that people would not get to hear the good news of recovery. She said, they'll read in the newspapers about somebody getting a DUI or about somebody being arrested for being drunk, but they won't get to read or hear about the good news of recovery. I worry about that sometimes too, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I said, Angie, you're blessed. You have found Al-Anon. And then I said, most people don't stay when they find us. Most people don't stay. Man, if everybody stayed that came, wow, but they don't. Most people don't. For Al-Anon, they, they come, they, they learn we don't have a magic pill to cure their alcoholic, and so they don't stay. So I had that opportunity to be able to come and be able to stay and be able to learn. All right, let me take a little break here. We will be continuing our conversation with Angie in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. You can also find the donate button on our website, which you can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you. The listeners, Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Miss Angie. All right, so there's a lot of people who come. Yes. But the reality is very few stay. Mm -hmm. 
What is your thought process on that? Do you, do you see any sort of thread in the people that actually end up staying and or the people that end up scooting on out the door? Well, well, you know, I was in and out for 12 years. Okay. I was in and out for 12 years. I, I, for me, for me, I so did not want to look at me because I believe that I was defective. I believe there were so many things wrong with me, but I believed I could help other people. And that's where I wanted my attention to be. If I can just help these people around me and help them get better and help their lives get better, then somehow I guess I thought that would make my life be better too. But what I learned in Alan was I really couldn't help any of those people I could only help me. I know I see so many people come to Al-Anon in so much pain and they're, they're just almost desperate to help the alcoholics in their life. Um, and when they hear that we're about them helping themselves, some people think, well, then I'm going to go elsewhere because mm-hmm. I've got to help this loved one of mine. I'm afraid they're going to die. I'm afraid they're going to be an, end up in jail or end up in prison. So if you can't give me the answer for them, then I'm going elsewhere. Well, we do give give them the answer. It's just not the answer they want because the answer is I have to help me. Mm-hmm. And they want to hear this is how you help them. And even when we say you help them by helping yourself, that's not what they want. And I can appreciate that. I can so appreciate that. If someone had said they had a magic pill they could give me that would help the people in my life, I would sure want to get that magic pill and take it to them and help them get better. Um, you know, our program is, is a simple program, but it's not a simple program to work in my experience. It's a hard program to work. It's, an, it's a program where we have to be bare bones honest. We have to be open to all of our emotions and our experiences and I know it takes it takes courageous people to do that. It takes courageous people to do that. And I just happened to be in so much pain. That's what motivated me was, was the pain that I was in when, when I came back June 15th, 1990. Okay. So let's just, are you able to wrap up those 12 years best you can? Because I got a feeling they were not exactly uh, all... Uh... Uh, just a wonderful experience. Tell me about those 12 years. Well, you know, I went from, uh, as far as relationships, I went from short-term relationships to short-term marriages. I, I was married several times. No marriage lasted longer. Maybe no marriage lasted two years. Uh, most didn't last a year. Um, I would get in an alcoholic marriage, and it was it was the most... It took about three times for me before I woke up one day in several relationships, before I woke up one day and I said, Angie, you know, the only thing that is the same in these marriages and relationships is you, honey. You are the only thing that is the same. So I knew that, but I didn't know what to do about that. I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't understand why. And so fortunately for me, I had enough al under my belt that I knew that's where the answers were. And I knew that I was going to have to work those steps. I was going to have to get a sponsor. I was going to have to do everything that Al-Anon said to do if it was going to make a change. Because I had half measured it every way you could. I asked a good friend of mine to sponsor me. We sponsored each other. Neither one of us had other sponsors. We sponsored each other. One time I did a step a step five, four and I wrote it on little pieces of paper and put it in my shoe because I thought I didn't want anybody to see it. What an ego I had, you know? Nobody <laughs> cared about that, but my ego was so big. Everybody in the world is going to want to know this trash about me. You know, I got to put it in my shoe so they can't find it. Oh, my goodness. I was a sick puppy. I did it every way you could do. I rationalized and justified over and over and over. I did it every way you could do it except the way we're told to do it. In June 15th, 1990, I think it's probably truly the first time that I ever really did surrender in any, in any manner, you know, and said, I'm going to do it. I will do it. 
So let's talk about June 15th of 1990. Mm -hmm. You know, and I get this question all the time about me and sobriety. What was the difference this time? You know, what, why did you stay? What's the difference in those 12 years? Um, Talk to me a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. I think for me, I had, I had done everything else I could do. You know, I, I tell parents sometimes that I know that they are going to have to do everything they believe they can do before they're going to get to that place where they can say, I've done everything I can do, everything I can do. So now I can let go. And that's the way it was for me. I had to believe I had done everything I could do to fix it myself, everything I could do to make my life right myself, everything I could do to have a happy life and a happy home myself before I could finally see that I did not have the answers. I I did not know how. I did not know what to do. Uh, I had lived my life those 12 years in fear. I had lived most of my whole life in fear. I had made decisions based on fear. I had married people based on fear. And, And I just became willing to do something different, no matter what the cost was going to be, no matter what the cost, I knew I could no longer keep going the way I was. When you say I married people based on fear, first of all, you've talked about being married several times here. Can I ask you how many times have you been married? Sure. I was married uh, four times before I got, before June 15th, 1990. No, no, one marriage, maybe over a year, the other ones, you know, six months, eight months, very short-lived marriages. Once I got into recovery, before I married once, you know, I thought that it was going to be great because now I'm in recovery. And he told me he was alcoholic before we got married, but you know, I'm in recovery now, so I know it's going to be okay. <laughs> that was the problem, and I'm, and I'm getting straightened out, so I know it's going to be okay. Well, it wasn't okay. Oh. And so 2006... I did a 10th and 11th step inventory and realized that I did a 10th step inventory and realized that while I had turned over every part of my life to God, I had never turned over that male female relationship part. Now the wreckage by this time is up to my chin, but I'm still thinking that I can do it better than God, that I know it better than God. And so finally 2006, and I've been an hour on a while now, 2006, I said, I surrender. I cannot do this. I don't know how to do it. I just mess it up when I try to do it. So God, I'm done. I'm just, I'm just done. I'm not going to look for men. I'm not going to search them out. I'm just going to learn how to be a happy, joyous, and free single woman in recovery. I'm going to go to therapy and start going through all this wreckage that's chin deep and start looking at it. Uh, I, I looked at my spiritual life. Uh, God was a big kahuna in the sky to me, which was wonderful. But I also wanted him to be my best friend, my buddy, my pal. I wanted him to be right next to me. I wanted to be able to talk to him just like I'm talking right now. And I didn't have that. And I wanted that. So I said, I'm going to do some things different in my spiritual life. So I did that. So I did all this stuff. It was in therapy, lots of things for eight years. This young girl came up to me one time. She said, Miss Angie, are you telling me that I can't date for eight years? Because I didn't date for eight years. And I said, no, honey, I'm not telling you that. I said, but I am telling you this. Don't settle. Don't settle. We know when we're settling. We hear that still soft voice. You know, I can't tell you the miracles I missed out on job-wise, house-wise, relationship-wise, because I would settle. I know sometimes right before God was ready to give me a miracle, but I would settle. So don't settle. But it took me that long. And finally, March the 8th, March the 8th, 2014, I went to the Flint River Roundup in Albany, Georgia, and uh, told God that day, I said, God, I've done everything you wanted me to do, and I just want you to know I'm ready. And I got to Albany and told a friend of mine, she saw that something had happened to me. She said, what's going on? I said, I told her, I said, I just told God, I've done everything you wanted me to do, and I just want you to know I'm ready. And Sure enough, the next day, Chip and I have a picture on our refrigerator that my daughter made of he and I on the stage there at Flint River. He had 26 years in AA, and I had 24 years in Al-Anon, and we had been friends for 14 years, and things started to change that day, and and six months later, we were married, and 
I've had my first ever second wedding anniversary, third wedding anniversary, fourth one, fifth one, fixing to have my sixth one. We're shooting for 50 years, and when we get there, we're going to aim for the next 50. So, <laughs> That's um, great. <laughs> I can tell, but you know, it, it's all about working this program and doing what we're told to do and what we read to do in our literature. All right, Andy. So, here is one of the issues I'm running into is that uh, we have barely gotten into you getting into <laughs> on yet, right? So if you would, what I'm going to do is ask you to come back another time, all right? And we will get uh, on record here, have a recording. We'll have another session and let people know to you. Well, they know a little of what happened to you after you got into recovery, but we'll kind of tell them the rest of the story. Would you be good with that? That would be great. That would be great. I would enjoy that so much. Thank you. All right. Well, I sure have appreciated you spending time here with me. God bless you, Miss Angie. Oh, and I always read it. I always end it with page 164 of the big book. And it says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit. And you will surely meet some of us like me and Miss Angie as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. So once again, Angie, I'll look forward to seeing you next time. We'll get some more time scheduled on the calendar. Okay. Thank you. Sounds great. Thank you, Miss Angie B. Um, I really enjoyed spending time with you. And for all of you listening in, uh, as I mentioned there toward the end of this episode, we will be having more of Angie B uh, next week uh, telling her story. And you're going to be sure to want to tune in and listen to next week's episode as well. All right. Now, on for a little bit of uh, listener feedback. And by the way, if you were impacted by Angie's story, please take a moment to pause your device and share it with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. And if you're not in the Super Secret Facebook group, send me your email associated with your Facebook account to John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. Calm, and we will get you an invite out right away to be in that group. Speaking of that group, uh, as I always say, we have a, uh, I, I call him our daily reflections guy. Uh, his name is Steve R. He posts in the secret Facebook group uh, just about every day, and he takes a quote from the big book. Um, he posted in the group and then he gives a little commentary after that. So this is what he had last week. It says lack of power. That was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. And that's from page 45 of the big book. And then his commentary is, we alcoholics aren't only slightly powerless or mildly powerless or occasionally powerless. We are, as alcoholics of our own power, completely powerless over alcohol. If we aren't powerless, we aren't alcoholics. If we are, we find a power in our steps. Help one, free two. Happy Saturday. And he always ends it up with sometimes I usually help one save too, but uh, he uh, kind of changed it up on me this week. So thank you for posting that, Steve. Craig writes in and he says, Dear John, I just listened to the episode with Reno John. Expect a miracle. I had been anxiously looking forward to this episode because of his previous episodes on the podcast, which spoke to me in a way I cannot explain. My name is Craig M. I'm from Spanish Fork, Utah. I just celebrated six years of sobriety on August 18th, 2020. I was noticing that my sobriety was becoming stagnant and more about me than others. 
I rededicated myself to regular meetings once again, uh, where I live, uh, when the meetings were starting again. And at one of these meetings, I met an amazing newcomer who I am blessed to be guiding through the steps. He is doing his fourth step inventory right now. And I am reminded once again about how much my life and my sobriety depend upon serving others. I love the program. Please send Reno John my warm regards. I know that I can expect a miracle, and God is always willing to go to any length. Thanks, John, for your service. I listen every week while I'm at work at my painting business. God bless. Well, Craig, while you're at your work at your painting business, I hope you're able to listen to this. As you know, I got you in touch with Reno John. Uh, he loves to... Uh, uh, most of these speakers do, right? The, most of these guests I have on, uh, they want to communicate with people that write in or uh, Instagram in or do whatever. Um, and um, uh, if you want to get in touch with any of the speakers and they and they have impacted you in some form or fashion, feel free to write me at john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com. All right. Uh, once again, thank you, Craig. Laura writes in and Laura says, Hi, John. I live in Corvallis, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> She's got pronounced Oregon. <laughs> She has the reason that she's doing this is she has heard me on previous episodes say, How do you say that? Oregon, Oregon. And so, anyway, it's all phonetically spelled out. Thank you very much, Miss Laura. She says, My sober date is August 20th, 2006. I found Sober Speak on Apple Podcasts. Early, early on in the pandemic, and it quickly became an integral part of my AA program. I recommended it to my sponsor, sponsees, and friends in the program. My favorite speaker has been, once again, Reno John. That's who Craig was just talking about. He cracks me up, and it is funny hearing how much he cracks you up, too. <laughs> Triple exclamation point. <laughs> You're right. He does crack me up. She says, thanks for letting me come along for the ride. Cheers, Laura W. Well, thank you for coming along on the ride. I really appreciate it. And if you're wondering who Reno John is, just go back and look through all my episodes. I think I've got three or four episodes from Reno John. Uh, and uh, you could just, uh, anyway, just look at those episodes, Reno John, and, and he's got at least three in there. Kenny B writes in, and Kenny B says, John, I live in Sterling Heights, Michigan. I am just over six months sober by the grace of God. My peer recovery coach told me about your podcast, and I absolutely love it. Well, Kenny B, uh, give me, give my best to your peer recovery coach. Anyway, he says, today I brought it up and started listening to it, uh, the the, uh, the podcast, and Reno, Reno John again here came on uh, talking about expecting miracles and God working through people, which is exactly what I needed to hear today. I broke down crying listening to Reno John because I've been struggling recently, not with drinking, but with putting his will before mine and feeling close to God. So when God put exactly what I needed to hear in front of me when I needed it, it reminded me that when I'm struggling, he, God, is always with me. So thank you, John, for doing this podcast and giving God an outlet and letting him work through you, Kenny B. Oh, Kenny B., thank you very much. Those are kind, kind words. And and I'm telling you, it's, it's uh, uh, emails like you guys just wrote to me, uh, and, and the messages on Instagram and and the Facebook posts and comments, uh, those are the things that 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 keep me going for sure. You guys are the best. Um, we have a wonderful little community here, and uh, I am so I, I'm just I'm forever thankful for each and every one of you listening in. God bless you. Keep coming back. Like I always say, I'm doing this one week at a time. And uh, um, hopefully, we will see you next week. Love you guys. Bye-bye.